Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Do you remember seeing travellers' cases or trunks that would be covered in old luggage labels? A hark to the past when people travelled by ship. Chris Bailey of Picture This talks to me in the first half of the programme today about some of the Hong Kong hotel luggage labels from his collection, including the Peninsula Hong Kong, and some of the hotels that are long gone but were grand in their time. In the second half, we move on to some of the ephemera he's collected over the years, a Chinese medicine price list, a booklet on how to take the MTR when it first opened in 1980, and a small book on anti-corruption by the former social activist, legislator and teacher Elsie Elliott, or as she was later known, Elsie Too. Chris will be bringing ephemera and other items to Hong Kong later this year in December, when he'll be joining other dealers, antiquarians and booksellers at a book fair taking place at the Hong Kong Maritime Museum. So there's an early one for your diary. Around the time that we started Picture This Gallery, I started collecting Hong Kong travel posters. And at that time, really had no idea what the spectrum of them was. But over the years, every time a poster came in that we didn't have in our collection, I would put it away in a drawer rather than selling it and started to assemble a collection. And back in 2015, shortly before we moved back to the UK, we actually sold the collection to a Hong Kong Baptist University library. They bought 110 roughly posters at that time, and they've added a few to the collection since. And we published a book through Blur of the collection. That sort of led me on to luggage labels, which in many ways can be seen as mini posters. <laughs> we all know what travel posters are and we all know the purpose of them, but luggage labels are a little bit different. They started being used by hotels around the 1890s, 1900s and became most popular and most widely produced really between the 30s and the 1950s. In the earlier days, if a visitor, a tourist had been coming to Hong Kong, they would have come in normally by sea, occasionally by a train from Canton. And in those days, you didn't have to haul your bags from your ship, from your transportation to the hotel. The hotels would send porters down to the wharf or onto the ship and they would collect your bags and they would deliver them to the hotels for you. So you could arrive there by rickshaw or by foot, unimpeded uh, from carrying your bags. And to make sure that the bags went to the right hotels, the hotels would stick these labels on the bags, which would identify which hotel they were going to. So if there were a dozen hotels in town, there would be porters from a dozen hotels that would come to greet the ship and they would all stick their own labels on. And when you were departing, you would stick labels on of the ship that you were going to and they would be stuck on as, as ship labels onto your trunks, which would then be sent back to the ships. And they were designed slightly differently. They would often have a tear off at the top or the bottom to determine whether you wanted those bags sent to the hold for your next port or whether you wanted them in cabin. Uh, so sometimes you'll see those labels unused and they will have both the perforated cabin at the top and hold at the bottom or oftentimes one or other will have been torn off. In the early days, the labels had no gum or anything on the back. I don't know for sure, but I assume that there must have been some sort of pot of glue which was on the table <laughs> by the ships where they would actually gum them and stick them on. Later on, they would have... Stick them on to... Onto the trunks. Right. Later on, and that's why you sometimes see old Louis Vuitton yeah. trunks, which have all the lovely old uh, labels um, on them, and they would have been the ones that were originally stuck on back in the 1920s or 30s. Later on, the, the labels had a gummed back, which would just need water to be applied to make them sticky to be stuck on. And then more recently, they would have a peel-off sticky back. Mm. And I think we all remember those from when we were younger. So have you ever bought a trunk of them? Um, I don't really look for the ones on trunks because what we're looking for are the ones that are in excellent condition. And of course, once they go onto a trunk, they tend to get bashed. So then you probably ask, well, you know, why would they survive if they haven't been used? And I think 
many tourists in 100 years ago as much as today. When we travel around, we like to collect little souvenirs of places we've been, and it might be tickets from a museum we've been to or a menu from a restaurant we've been to. But I think a lot of travellers in those days would have asked the bellhop or the concierge if they could have a luggage label or two, and those would get preserved and kept with everything else from the journey. Or they would get stuck into a travel scrapbook. And that's how so many have survived in, in great condition. So with your work with Picture This, in tandem with collecting the travel posters and also selling them as a dealer, did you also then start discovering these luggage labels or was this something from your boyhood that you'd already seen? No, it wasn't. certainly wasn't something from my boyhood. I mean, I guess I had seen luggage labels in the way that most people had, but never really sort of thought much of them. Uh, they were very ephemeral, very peripheral. But when we started collecting the posters, we started encountering the luggage labels as well. And as I had put aside one of every Hong Kong travel poster that I found, I also started putting aside one of every Hong Kong luggage label that I'd found. And we've assembled a collection of around 150 of them now, dating from about 1890 with a Hong Kong hotel label printed very simply in just blue on white paper, all the way up to the 1980s to hotels that we're familiar with or were familiar with, such as the Mandarin, the Hilton and the Fiorama. Yes, I was going to say, the, the luggage labels, again, like like the travel posters, are going to be. A, there's always going to be that backstory, the, the interesting aspect of whether these hotels or these airlines still exist. That's absolutely right. And some are names that have obviously disappeared. Some are names that we would know, although they've disappeared, like the Peak Hotel, which was at the top of the Peak Tram. Some are hotels that have survived over the years, like the Peninsula Hotel. Some are names that have been rekindled. So the original Hong Kong Hotel was on the waterfront on the Prior, and operated from the late 19th century. That closed, but then there was another Hong Kong hotel that opened in Kowloon later on that became the Marco Polo Hotel. I think it's also interesting when you, the sort of image that you conjure up of the the liner arriving mm. and uh, you've got all of these bellhops from the different hotels uh, waiting for this luggage to come off. It's, it's really quite a scene. Just as an aside from that, uh, something else I've started collecting more recently is actually luggage labels with bellhops on them. <laughs> so I'm not geographically uh, limited at all, but it, the label has to have a bell, bellhop in some way or other. And I can show you some of those. <laughs> That's quite specialist. <laughs> it is rather specialist. I don't have a lot of competition for those, I have to say. So we have there here the City Hotel in Buenos Aires, the Hotel Edward in Pretoria with a saluting bellhop. Super. And lovely artwork. They are lovely, aren't they? Barcelona. This one in Dakar in Senegal. And this wonderful, actually rather famous uh, label for the uh, Hotel Victoria in Cannes with a shouting uh, bellhop. Yes. Mm. So anyway, that's an aside from Hong Kong. Very rosy cheeks there. Yes. Yeah, so you had those luggage labels. And then when you are sourcing or when you're looking for, I mean, the items arrive to you in all sorts of different ways. You know, it could be it could be a fair or it could be mm. online or it could be uh, an individual or it can be a part of your contact network. You're absolutely right. Some have come out of collections. In the mid-20th century, sort of 1950s, 1960s, these were actually quite a popular collectible in some European countries. And we know that because we know the sources of them and sometimes the collectors would actually put their own ink stamp on the back. I think that's a defacement, but we will often see labels uh, with familiar names, stamps on the back. Uh, Hungary, I bought a big collection from Hungary about 15 years ago. The daughter of the original collector was selling off tens of thousands of labels and I did, obviously didn't want all of them, but I was able to have first access to all the East Asian 
Russian labels from that collection. Oh, how interesting. And that formed a big part of what we have. And there were several labels that came out of that that I've never seen anywhere else. Mm. Um, I also, two years ago, bought a collection from an American who I'd met online about 20 years ago when he was selling some of his multiples. And he decided to sell off the rest of his collection, uh, which wasn't just labels, but it was travel brochures and other sort of hotel ephemeral items, paper items. I bought the, his whole collection, which again enabled me to add a few things into our Hong Kong luggage label collection. <laughs> so you've got the Peak Hotel there, and that's I actually, so that's about three tone, isn't it, in terms of printing? Yeah, it's also interesting. Some of the labels will actually have an image of the building, the hotel building on them. And this one of the Peak Hotel with the hotel literally at the top of the peak, uh, looking down uh, down the hillside. And it says what, telegraph or telegram? It oh. has a telegram number. So the yes. telegram address of the Peak Hotel in those days was Peaceful Hong Kong. <laughs> and often labels would have a variant design, a slightly different design. So the second one in here uh, is also the Peak Hotel, uh, using the same image but with a slightly different design. Yeah, so it's, it's sort of lettering in red mm. and then the Peak Hotel and the hills and the, and the road up uh, are all done in a, a variety of green and cream. So it's the Peak Hotel Hong Kong and then below is the Hong Kong and Shanghai Hotels Limited. Which absolutely is, of course, the, the owner of the Peninsula Hotel. And in those days, they had several hotels in Hong Kong, including the Peak Hotel. And here on the right, we have a very early label from the Repulse Bay Hotel, with a view looking out over the terrace with Repulse Bay beyond. And actually, it looks quite similar today because this uh, walling is still there now. So that's the Riviera of the East. Mm. And then we have a series of labels here by an American commercial designer called Dan Sweeney. Dan Sweeney, sadly, we don't know very much about, but uh, he did design labels not just for Hong Kong and Shanghai hotels, but also for other well-known hotels in the Far East. Um, so here we have, again, the Peninsula, the Peak and the Repulse Bay. So yes, we've got a rickshaw man there. Mm. And then obviously uh, the peninsula prior to having its extension. So that's from the 30s. And then the next one is also the peninsula, but this is a 1980s label yeah. with an image of the uh, hotel back in its earliest days. Mm. And then we have more peninsula hotel labels. And these ones actually were designed by Henry Steiner. So the whole series he did. So Henry um, Steiner, the designer, of course, of the HSBC logo, among many, many other, other things. things. And uh, he's mm. still living in Hong Kong. Yes. So um, here we have a series of labels that he designed around 1970 for the Peninsula Hotel. And then the next label, which is a big rectangular label for the Mandarin with a white blank where you would be able to fill in an address or um, arrival or departure details, has got the hotel right on the waterfront. Mm. And of course, at the time the hotel was built, it was very close to the waterfront. I don't think it was quite that close. <laughs> a sort of pen and ink, isn't it? Mm. And then we come to another Henry Steiner design, which was the uh, the logo for the Hong Kong Hilton, which of course is on the site where uh, the Chong Kong Centre is today. But he designed this um, this artwork using a sort of bamboo design. And then we come on to a series of um, earlier labels. So this is for a hotel which no longer exists, but would have been a rather grand building. Uh, on the waterfront in Hong Kong, the Grand Hotel. And I've never seen another example of that label. And here we have the Gloucester Hotel. Oh, yes. Uh, which was on the corner of Devo Road and Pedder Street and is on the site where the Gloucester Tower is these mm -hmm. days. This was built in the 1930s and had a terrace up on the top here with an outdoor uh, cafe and sitting area. But this is done in what I think is a very sort of Shanghai Tang style, very Art Deco, sort of Shanghai style. An almost endless number of smaller hotels that would have been around at the early part of the 20th ah. century. So the Astor House, which was on number 13, Queen's Road Central. St. Francis Hotel. St. Francis Hotel. Hotel, which was on Queen's Road. Uh, the Cecil Hotel. And then more different labels for the St. Francis Hotel, including one that falls into two of my collections because it's <laughs> a, a Hong Kong label with a bellhop. <laughs> 
This is an interesting one because this is for the Four Seas Hotel in Kowloon. And for those of you who've read Guaylo by Martin Booth, this was the hotel that he stayed in with his family when he first arrived in Hong Kong. Right. If I remember, he was at the back of the hotel on the third floor. Chris Bailey talking there about his collection of luggage labels. There's something wonderfully nostalgic about the old designs and colours. In this second half, Chris talks to me about a hodgepodge of items that all come under ephemera that he's collected over the years. I've become very interested in ephemera and collecting and dealing in ephemera because it's often unique or at least very rare and it means I'm handling things I've never seen before and you know oftentimes having done this for 25 years the 20th copy of the same book doesn't get very exciting to uh, to buy and sell but a little booklet or a piece of paper that I've never seen before and probably ne would never see again which has a story that can be researched it actually is much more interesting it inspires me a lot more to keep doing this. But do you find that when you're looking for these items or do they just come to you? I would have imagine that you know we've got here at least three school prospectus or school books that we'll be looking at they're not going to be as easy to come by as actual books that's absolutely right i mean they may have been printed in a similar quantity but the wastage rate would have been very high so a school prospectus uh, 15 20 pages long from the 1950s that would have been given out to parents considering sending their children there normally would have gone in the bin there would be no particular reason to keep these things once they've been used. And we're the same today. I mean, we get so much paper that comes across our desks or through our letterboxes, solicited or unsolicited, that we all just discard it in the waste paper basket. So when things do get kept, yes, I mean, they can be fascinating and very scarce. You're right, we have uh, prospectuses or magazines from three different schools in Hong Kong, all dating back to the 1940s and 50s, so shortly after the Second World War. But they all came to me from different directions. You've got the peak school there. So the peak school one, actually, this came through my hands about 15 years ago. And I sold it to somebody who just sold it back to me last <laughs> month. The St. Stephen's College one came to me from a book fair about a year ago. And the two for the Gun Club Hill Junior School, which was in Kowloon, these came in a box of books and ephemera from a Hong Kong expat. Um, so they've all come from different directions. And they're fascinating, actually. So the, the Peak School Prospectus and the St. Stephen's College Prospectus both have photographs in. For the Peak School, we have a picture of the what they call the new Peak School. And then it informs parents about school fees, very importantly, the buildings, the facilities, uh, the teaching staff, the school hours, and uniform. And here we have winter uniform. Girls, grey pinafore frock, fully flared with eight panels. Summer uniform, girls' frock, white cotton peak, square neck, cap sleeves with a slit on the shoulder. Socks must match the blouse. And then information on uh, medical, physical examinations, what to do if the kids are ill. Teeth, extraction only, conservative treatment given when time permits. <laughs> Diseases. Oh um, yes, typhoid, diphtheria, uh, whooping cough, chicken pox, measles, mumps and germ, measles and scarlet fever. And of course, yeah, typhoid and diphtheria. These are diseases that would have been a concern. Um, so when is this dating back to this? Peak uh, this was 1949, this mm. one. And then we have one here from, which isn't dated, but is around the same era, which is from St. Stephen's College in Stanley. It's a, a larger booklet, again, with photographs of the school. And of course, this school had boarding facilities. So we do have uh, photographs of the dining hall, but also the boarding facilities and similar information in here. This one's bilingual as well. It's in uh, Chinese. 
at one end and English at the other end. And this is from the similar era? Uh, these are a little bit later. Yeah. These, um, this magazine's called Tapa San, and it was the, uh, the Gun Club Hill Primary School. So a school that would have been probably for uh, the children of British forces. And this is more, it's almost like a yearbook. So it's got contributions by the children. Uh, Jane Strike, aged nine, who wrote about her guinea pigs. <laughs> and uh, Paul Jones, aged eight, who wrote about wild cats on Stonecutters Island. It's a fascinating look at uh, what children in the 60s uh, going to primary school in Hong Kong would have been doing and would have been interested in in the experiences that they would have had. And plus also in definitely those two, you've got adverts for mm. tailors and school uniform outfitters. Oh yes, I mean I love uh, the advertisements that are in here. So we've got some familiar names. The Hong Kong Bank has uh, advertised on the inside rear cover and uh, Watson's as well, who say since 1841, Hong Kong has been celebrating with Watson's drinks. And then international brands like Coke found their way in here and P&O Orient Lines. Another angle of ephemera that we've got on the table are retail products. So we have a large price list from a Chinese medicine supplier, Tin Sum Tong, which was at 141 Bonham Strand East. And as I think you know, um, Bonham Strand has been for many years sort of the centre of retailing of Chinese medicine products. So it's quite thin paper and it's mm. it's quite long. Yes. It stretches across. What's that at the top? A piece of ginseng? and it's some... a large piece of ginseng and some antlers as a design at the top. And it's essentially just written in Chinese, but it's a price list for um, all the products that they had at their time, working from the cheaper products on the left to the most expensive products on the right. And this has been chopped with an ink stamp with a date on it because obviously the retailer would want to know that if somebody brought this in that they would be using the most recent price list and not an earlier one. And then we've also got two other price lists which are from one still well known today and one less well known, a retailer of foods. In those days you could order food, western products primarily, to be delivered to your house. And so we have a price list from Lane Crawford's from January 1959 and from the Asia company, Comprador Stores, Hong Kong, Kowloon, a price list from December 1965. So is Lane Crawford your supplier of food? Well, I, according to this, the, you can get your Weetabix from them, <laughs> your Gruyere cheese, and your Round Trees cocoa as well. <laughs> <laughs> and this also had advertisements for our products that they would have been selling. So here we can see Airwick, uh, an aerosol spray, whiskey, Scotch whiskey, not surprisingly, dry fly sherry, and on the inside rear cover, a colour advertisement for Kodak films and cameras. Again, it probably would have been, this would have been printed every month and they probably would have made hundreds of them. It's very simply bound with staples. But I should think 98% of them, 99% of them probably got thrown away within a couple of weeks because why would you keep last month's price list when next month's has just arrived? I mean, it's interesting to also see Lane Crawford. I always identify, of course, Lane Crawford these days as high-end retail, yeah, high-end high uh, department store. But it's it's also interesting for me to see Lane Crawford's and Sia Watson's wing on just how long they've been in Hong Kong. Well, Lane Crawford's been around since the uh, mid-19th century and started off on the prior as a yacht chandler's. So as a company, it's been through quite a few evolutions over the years. And here we have another little booklet with a card wrap. This one calls itself MTR Guidebook and is dated first edition January 1980. And it's about 30 pages long and it's providing passengers, prospective passengers, with information on the new MTR, including in here how to use the system, how to enter the station, how to buy your ticket, how to pass through the entry barrier and how to get to the train. But there isn't much of an MTR at that point. No, there wasn't. It was one simple line that ran from uh, Central through Admiralty across the harbour and ran to Kowloon Bay.
past Kowloon Bay to Kuntong. Mm. I can remember riding on this uh, April 1980, so shortly oh, after really? it opened. Yeah, I'm, I was living in Hong Kong at the time. But again, this would have been printed many times over, repeatedly, as the, uh, as the MTR grew. And the wastage rate would have been very high. I should think very few of these survive today. You know, they're very utilitarian, but actually very interesting as a little snapshot of the history of Hong Kong at the time. And here we have another one. AOA Guides to Hong Kong, sponsored by P&O Orient Lines. And this is to the nightlife and shopping of Hong Kong. <laughs> and some parts of this I can certainly tell you about, but other parts I think will leave under wraps. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's quite risque on the, uh, on the nightlife. What, girly bars? Girly bars, certainly, yes. Um, dating bar girls is the top of one of the chapters. <laughs> and comments for single girls. Single Western girls are outnumbered by bachelors and are therefore much in demand that without a proper introduction, it's unlikely a tourist will have an opportunity to date any. It's also difficult to meet Chinese family girls as they can be rarely be dated without a formal introduction. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a shopping and nightlife of mm. Hong Kong as published by AOA. And that's uh, with the compliment of the P&O Orient Lines. But when does that date back to? Uh, this will be 1960s, late 1960s. Ah. Yeah, yeah, because you've already got plenty of neon there. Mm. Yeah, um, and bright lights. I mean, it's, it's quite attractive, the covers, isn't it? Mm. And here's another little booklet. This one's got a wonderful title. It's The Avarice, Bureaucracy and Corruption of Hong Kong. And it was published in 1971 and was written and has actually been signed by one Elsie Elliott, who we all know better as Elsie Two. So this is, of course, ahead of the ICAC, uh, but it's at a time of uh, a lot of police corruption and probably a lot Mm. of endemic uh, corruption in the government, yes. Again, I've only ever seen two copies of this Mm, book. I've never seen that, but it's interesting. The Avarice, Bureaucracy and Corruption of Hong Kong, as seen by Elsie Elliott. And here we have another, I think, quite rare today. International Regulations for Preventing Collisions at Sea, 1960, issued by the Marine Department in Hong Kong. So this isn't Hong Kong specific, but it's got a large fold-out, very large fold-out, International and Hong Kong Port Signals. So it lists the signals that ships would be expected to fly when they came into Hong Kong, notifying what goods they were carrying and whether there were dangerous goods on board or not, if they were requesting help, for example, with a pilot. Here we've got Colony of Hong Kong, Typhoon's Toll. Is this a poster? or? It, it, well, it's, it would be called a broadside, but it's effectively like a poster, and it was uh, published, printed by Ye Old Printery, shortly after the calamitous uh, September 1937 typhoon. In those days, uh, typhoons weren't given names, so we know them today by the dates. But this was one of the worst typhoons that ever came through Hong Kong. There's a map of Hong Kong and the New Territories, and on it, it marks the location of ships that were wrecked or went ashore uh, in the typhoon. There are over 20 of them, and a list in the text at the bottom of all the ships, their names and their sizes. And at the top, we've got two charts. One of them is a barogram or barometric pressure chart showing how the uh, pressure in Hong Kong at the time the typhoon hit absolutely collapsed. And then the second one shows wind speeds and the incredibly strong wind speeds that pass through Hong Kong at the same time. So it's an early visual representation of the impact of the typhoon. And who would have used it? What would it have been used for? Well, I think it would have been pinned up for informational purposes, because in those days, of course, there were no televisions. There would have been radio, but not everybody would have had access to them. So newspapers were the primary way of passing information. But this sort of visual thing that would have been stuck up in the street would have provided a very immediate visual impact of the typhoon. So it was published by Ye Old Printery. Yeah. So we've got a map here of Hong Kong, uh, where you can see, as you say, by all the different individual islands, mm. where, where these uh, poor ships have ended up grounded or mm. shipwrecked and uh, just the huge devastation that occurred. 1906 and 1937 were the most devastating ones that came in at that time, yeah. 
So this is a little bit earlier than the other ephemerae we were looking at and actually probably has a greater survival rate. There are probably more of this around than the others because it would have been an interesting thing for people to keep or, you know, it would have been preserved, whereas the more ephemeral items like the shopping price lists and the school prospectuses would tend to have been discarded much more quickly. Age is not necessarily a factor in uh, scarcity. It's more if it's, it's sort of perceived as every day. Yeah or perceived as having some more permanent use. So if I had lived in Hong Kong when that typhoon came through in 1937 and I'd survived it, I probably would want to keep something just to remind myself what I'd been through. But a shopping list? Nah, that can go in the bin. Yes. The other thing um, with these more ephemeral items is traditionally uh, institutions have not tended to collect them. So if you have a scarce book, the chances are that they're libraries around the world, whether it's public lending libraries, institutional libraries, university libraries that will have copies. But traditionally, those sort of institutional collections have not bought or preserved or kept these more ephemeral items. It's becoming more popular now, but traditionally they weren't doing so. Now, it's interesting for me, I've been talking to a variety of collectors and they'll have receipts and this could be Mm. to do with motoring, it could be to do with all sorts of things or it can be a drinks firm. For me they're increasing in their interest. It's the handwriting, it's the fact that you're using a fountain pen at that time. Yes, I think it's also the fact that the prices were often so low. (laughs) Uh, It's the type of products that people were purchasing and it's also just the the style of the printing and the print faces that we use. So here we have a receipt from Shanghai from 1907 for a naval tailor and general outfitter. And the Mr. Suter, who was buying, bought some pyjamas and a coat. and Gold epaulettes. Epaulettes. Uh, so he <laughs> bought a, a coat and then some epaulettes. But it was bought from somebody called Jelly Belly, which appears to have been sort of the nickname for the actual outfitter, Ton Yu. So they're a naval tailor, general outfitter. So this is where everybody probably who was... Coming in as uh, naval or uh, army officers uh, would have gone to uh, be fitted out or refitted. So they were dealers in cotton, woolen goods, boots, shoes, hats, etc., etc. So did you get your epaulettes done at Jelly Belly? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and you can see why they would put that nickname on the receipt so everybody would recognise who he was. Oh, yeah, so we've got... Uh the Sangfat Silk Store, Chimpo Curios and Dry Goods Company. Well, that's a, that's an interesting mix of saleable goods, and that was in Queen's Road. Inspection invited to the mix of Chinese and English. And if we look on the back, there's Chinese curios, jade, stone, ancient bronze, old lacquered ware, cloison, crystal, agate, brocade, old Chinese painting. So all of those that you would expect. And you might still see a little bit of the genuine stuff along Hollywood Road. You've got some silk shawls, old and new embroideries. But you've also got, of course, the carved ivory, amber beads. But what I also find fascinating here is the kingfisher's featherwork. These would have all been things that uh, visitors, tourists, yes. coming to the Far East would have been interested in buying and taking home as souvenirs. Yeah. So the, the, the souvenir king... shop would have quite a wide range of things. But the kingfisher's featherwork, I mean, they, they nearly uh, made the kingfisher extinct, I should think. Yes, I think that's probably right, isn't it? This is a book of ordinances. It is, it is the Ordinances of Hong Kong, and it was published by the government. And this is based on the then recently announced ordinances. So this book was published in 1868. And it was printed by Naronha and Sons. And it has their bookseller's label on the inside of the front cover. And it covers the years 1865 to 1867. And one of the more significant events in that time was actually the establishment of the Hong Kong and Shanghai Banking Corporation in Hong Kong. It had been founded in Shanghai in 1865 and then was established in Hong Kong the following year. So it sets out the criteria under which the bank was to be established and to operate in Hong Kong. Of course, one of the most significant things was that the bank was allowed to issue its own banknotes. So Section 12 
sets out here about the issuance of the banknotes and says that it shall be lawful for the company to make, issue and circulate notes or bills payable to the bearer on demand in coin lawfully current in Hong Kong and to reissue the same, provided that no such notes shall be issued for any other sums than the sum of $5 or some multiple thereof. So it's interesting. So this, uh, of course, even today, Hong Kong Bank still issues a lot of the uh, the banknotes in Hong Kong. You're a former banker, aren't you? I am a former banker, and I worked for <laughs> HSBC for quite a few years, actually. And of course, through all that time, and right back to the uh, the mid nineteenth century, HSBC has issued most of the banknotes in Hong Kong, and this was the ordinance under which they were allowed to do that. So um, does Hong Kong vary then from other places that would have had a, a key central bank? Yes, I mean, for example, in England, uh, banknotes are issued by the Bank of England, and the Bank of England is the one that stands behind them. But in Hong Kong. There wasn't a central bank. It was the commercial banks that issued the banknotes. And Hong Kong Bank could only issue notes up to the limit of the reserves that they had. So that if there was ever a run and people wanted to cash in the banknotes, they could stand behind that. But yes, it was very unusual for a private bank to be issuing the banknotes. And here they were, and this is where it was authorised. So I think as a little bit of uh, Hong Kong history, commercial history, this is a fascinating uh, issue of the ordinance. My thanks to Chris Bailey there of Picture This. You can find his website at picturethiscollection.com. Chris will be coming to Hong Kong to join other dealers and antiquarians at a fair called Firsts Hong Kong, which will be taking place at the Hong Kong Maritime Museum from the 6th to the 8th of December. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. Mm-hmm.